Hi, this is Andy, and thank you for joining me for the Next Stage Radicals podcast, where each month I'm joined by a Next Stage Radical, someone who is hands-on in the work of discovering new and better ways of working, challenging the conventions of Management 1.0 in order to move the world of work to the next stage. In each episode, I invite my guests to share their warts and all stories about what works and what doesn't, and what it's taking for them to make work work better. This month's guest is Gary Wallace. Gary works in the Office of the Director for Public Health in the City of Plymouth and is a member of the Plymouth Alliance leadership team. His work there with colleagues from across communities and public services has pioneered a radically different way of thinking about leading, commissioning and improving public services. As a founding member of the Human Learning Systems Collaborative, he generously shares and builds on the insights of that work with others, while continuing to support initiatives in Plymouth across a wide range of issues. Gary, it's a huge pleasure to have you here today. I've been looking forward to our chat, I have to say. I know we've spent a bit of time together in the past, but this is maybe my first chance to really sort of do a deep dive into what makes you tick and the things that you've been working on. So welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Girls. Nice to be anywhere, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. And uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but it was your 60th birthday yesterday. So congratulations was, on yeah. that too. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so Gary, you know the routine, um, a few questions and hopefully just an informal chat for us. Um, you know where I like to start us. So could you just share with me um, what's the big idea, the vision? What is it that, you know, really gets you up in the morning and, and gets you motoring? Uh, so, I mean, that's a very simple question, a very uh, complicated uh, answer. So it's a kind of bunch of things. Um, so my part of public health is really concerned with uh, health improvement, health services, and and obviously the big kind of meta theme in public health is uh, inequality, inequality in health, wealth, and uh, well-being. Um, but the, I guess you could, in terms of the work I do with services, which what is mainly what um, uh, I I speak about, it's about how services over a number of years have moved away from their purpose uh, and they have all these kind of cultural accretions which actually make it very hard to deliver their purpose. Um, I would add as a kind of caveat my base assumption is that everybody that works in public services wants to do their best and they want to do a good job uh, and it's really about the ways the many ways in which they're prevented from, do, from doing that so so I think I would say it's about helping everybody focus on what the purpose of this thing is and are we or are we not achieving that and sadly in in, in most cases for for a number of reasons often outside the control of the service although sometimes within it um services don't achieve or or stay focused on their on, on their actual core, core core purpose and they become these kind of ossified algorithmic uh things which uh, are more concerned with uh, preserving the way they do things and uh, than they are with actually really re-examining why they're there and what they should be doing. Yeah, yeah. And um, if you've got one top of head, could you give us an example of what, what you mean there? Uh, yeah, so one of the things that a colleague Dan Priest and I vape, um, blogged about on your website, so vaping, so the way smoke and the architecture of smoke and cessation services is, uh, in, to my mind, really um, silly. So, if you think where we are in in in, in anti-smoking in the UK is, we're in this place where we've been enormously successful with the better off and the better educated, uh, but actually we've really increased inequality uh, with poor smokers, let's, let's describe people as poor smokers or, um, yeah, so, so the vaping experiment was about saying, well, what is the purpose of smoking cessation? Well, at this point in time, it's about reducing the inequality between poor smokers and, uh, and wealthier smokers or non-smokers. Um, but the, all the architecture of the way the service works, you know, um, carbon monoxide monitoring, nurses giving you prescriptions for things you can buy freely in a shop um, all those kind of things 
are really antithetical to the lived experience of the people we're trying to target. And uh, so Dan and I did a big thing with smoking cessation about, you know, you know, what's a more effective way of, uh, of delivering this, which removes all these layers of, uh, of bureaucracy and governance and, uh, and routine, uh, routine practice. Um, because in parallel with uh, smoking cessation, uh, not really being taken up by poor smokers, uh, vaping had really taken off and, and public health uh, had largely, well, spent a couple of years with its fingers in its ears, going la 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 and ignoring it. Uh, and then suddenly um, became interested. Uh, and so one of the experiments we ran, we ran which we, we, we wrote about was this uh, discussion we had with smoking cessation, uh, identify the group of people that you probably think are never ever going to stop smoking, that there would be a waste of your time as a service, which is kind of paid by targets. Uh, and they, they identified rough sleepers uh, and, and um, people with addictions. Uh, and the initial experiment was to give away, uh, I can't remember now if it was 12 or 20, three months free supply uh, with minimal, uh, minimal governance around that. In fact, we used a shop, the, a guy who owned a vape shop to do, to, um, to do all the prep work with the, with, the, with, the, with the group, which was instructive in itself, I think, uh, for all of us, including the smoking cessation staff. So, so we involve, so when we're doing an experiment, we involve everybody in that experiment. We're not doing things to services. We're encouraging them to, to be part, to be part, part of the process. Um, so the guy from the shop, he did all, all, all that. The really interesting thing about that, of course, is uh, he was entirely asset-based in this conversation <laughs> with the group. He didn't even think about it. It wasn't, oh, I'm going, I'm going to have an asset-based conversation. He just did it because um, what he wants is, is to make it as easy as possible for them to come into his shop and buy his product. Um, so it was a, it, that in itself was really, really interesting. Uh, so we gave away the vapes and we had this really kind of amazing uh, take up amongst the group. And as with all these experiments that you do in complex systems, you, 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 there are all these unlooked for knock-on effects. So of that initial group, who, who would have been seen as um, really a kind of a heart sink group, you know, for, for all services, they couldn't, you know, they, they, they weren't very good at getting them to engage, uh, that, that, that kind of thing. We suddenly found, because we'd given them these, these vapes and we'd taken an interest because we were following it up with the Christian inquiry, asking them things about themselves, they all started to engage in other health services. So a number of them went to, you know, uh, we have a, an arrangement for, for people to go to the dentist, um, with the dental school and loads of them went got their teeth fixed lots of them began engaging with mental health services and, and addiction services as well as taking up vaping we even went to uh, or Dan went to interview someone in the home who was on the experiment who was living in a hostel and when he arrived that person was trying to persuade staff to start vaping and soft smoking which is just a really interesting thing and then, and then the upshot of that is you're suddenly um you know, during COVID, we gave away over 300 uh, because we had so much success. And we're now uh, in discussion with the hospital about giving free vapes uh, to all of the hepatology ward and, uh, and the chest ward. So, um, but the most instructive thing was uh, everybody in the group, so all of the smoker cessation staff and the commissioning staff were suddenly, wow, this is, this is something we could, you know, we have kind of moved away from our central purpose. Uh, and there are a number of ways we could do this differently and more cheaply. So uh, very often what we've found, it's never our intention to do this. When we do experiments in services and particularly in places like the Alliance, the thing you, you end up with, if you focus relentlessly on purpose is often cheaper than, you, than, than, uh, than kind of business as usual. Um, uh, it's a bit like that, uh, so all this increased failure demand we have because we've lost to have preventative services. Um, and if you get into a narrative where a threshold in a service, which might be there for perfectly good reasons for the service, essentially the message you're communicating to someone is you're not sick enough, go, go away and come back when you're much sicker. Um, that's a crazy place to be. And if we can, uh, if we can intercede uh, in a kind of supportive way with the service to, to maybe reassess what the purpose of this service is and, and make the threshold fuzzy and permeable, we can, 
it, I mean, it saves money in unplanned care. So the, the real rising costs for the NHS and councils is unplanned care. So things like bed and breakfast, accommodating children, uh, use of emergency departments, frequent, uh, frequent admissions, use of blue light, they, they can often be solved with very simple um, simple approaches, but those approaches often involve uh, a disregard for the current um, threshold-based culture in services. So that, that was a really rambly answer. Uh, no, it was awesome. It was great. And what I love about all the stories that you have to tell around that is the way that um, they're very, to my ear at least, very grounded and practical and rooted in, you know, the real work, if you like. You know, they're not... They're not abstract policy initiatives. Um, what also strikes me is um, the work you're doing is sort of a curious mix of what might feel like total common sense and yet um, quite radically different to how things are normally done. So it's probably a well-worn path to talk about why does um, common sense get evaporated off, but maybe could you point out some of the kind of underlying principles and practices that, that help in this work? You touched on some there around appreciative inquiry and so on. So what, what are the things that you find yourself doing often relying upon? Um, so I guess um, appreciative inquiry and I mean, I, I am a bit fast and loose with that term, but um, um, so we, we do appreciative inquiry in the sense that people would recognise appreciative inquiry, but we also do kind of shorter things and longer things, and we, we, we call it all appreciative in, uh, inquiry. So, so the, the thing about that, there are two things. The first is to, to hear what the person's actual lived experience is. Often uh, services have a, a view that they loom large in the lives of people. Uh, and they're often, when you, when you ask people about their actual lives, um, services don't figure as largely as services assume. But there's this idea that, so, so very often when, when we first start with a service, we say, we're gonna do some appreciative inquiry, here's how you do it. And it's a really open and positive conversation with someone. And, and they will often respond, but we, we, we do that all the time. You know, we're, we're always having open conversations. When we set up the Alliance, we did lots of um, observation behind the one-to-one -one door. So we sat in on lots of sessions in lots of services, dozens and dozens, um, addiction services, homeless services, offending services. And what, what you find is, um, I mean, they're often very good quality. I, I would say that first, but they're often very similar, the, the minimal difference. But, but what appears to happen is the, the person speaks about their life and and the listener is looking for patterns in what they say in order to match that person's, what, what they would call express needs to probably a threshold based package of care. And that's a very different kind of conversation to the conversations you have in appreciative inquiry, which is much more, this is me, who are you? Um, and uh, it's often very revealing just to get, uh, just to teach and support people to have those conversations because they suddenly recognize, actually we haven't been, you know, it's been quite, and it, we've been having quite instrumental conversations with people uh, rather than a kind of open, open listening. And often, and some, sometimes that's just enough, you know, people think, God, you know, we haven't really been listening uh, in the way we thought and, and, and we need to change. But um, it's one of those things which, so, so I like to think of it of a kind of a guided discovery. So, so myself and others who do this in Plymouth, we try to avoid uh, telling people that, uh, you know, this is how you do it and, and there's this thing you're going to find and there's that thing you're going to find uh, and there's this bit of theory. It's much more about, um, my core belief is that everybody, people want to do good things and, and if I show them things which moved me, they will be moved too. I don't need to hit them over the head with a hammer. Uh, you know, if I, if I give them the opportunity, the privilege of, of having these conversations with people, they will be moved by that and they will want to do something about that. And if you do lots and lots of appreciative inquiry, you create a counter narrative to the prevailing um, ethos in services. Um, and, and most services most of the time want to respond to that, to that message. And then it's about how you, how you support them. 
the the other thing so 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 yeah so we start with listening and when we do this in a system we listen to everybody not just the the people with lived experience we listen to the the public facing staff to the managers to the commissioners to the relatives uh whoever whoever might be involved and and we we encourage them to participate uh in this process so so you you create a kind of learning collective learn it learning through listening um collective when i first started to do this work i used to in, which was probably 2008 um when i was quite an outlier i used to agonize over where should we start uh but the more i've done it i don't worry about that at all now so if if complex systems are non-linear it doesn't matter where you start. So, so I think of it as what you want to do. You, I think of it as a still pond. That the service as is is like a still pond. It's undisturbed, and what I need to do is make ripples because the ripples reveal things to people. And it doesn't matter where I chuck the stone, so long as I create ripples. So, lots of the experiments we do, on the face of it, look. Um, they're not part of a pattern or sequence. It's it's look for the look for the part of the system where you can do something fairly easily, um, and and go there and do that, and that will have consequences. So the vape thing is a perfect example of that. Uh, not just the way it's taken off, but but the fact that people started to get other parts of their health. Uh, dealt with and some of the people um, have been known to services for 15 or 20 years um, and staff weren't aware of the rich the richness of their stories because uh, they'd never had that kind of appreciative inquiry type conversation with them they'd had these assessment based uh, what I like to think of as denial of service conversations um, uh, yeah so another ramble but yeah, that no, no, really, really helpful. Um, and I think it felt like that revealed a bit of a clue as well around how do you do this sort of work in a system that's maybe not designed to do it. It sounded like you know putting down the burden of agonizing over where to start is is one way. Just go where there's traction. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, very, 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 very much so. Yeah. Do you think? Could you say a wee bit more about? Um, the approach to listening so you mentioned that you know staff maybe that you've worked with have um come through lives that they thought they were listening but they weren't quite so um any stories to tell or what, what's the difference how would you pinpoint the difference uh it's the sudden realize that can i tell you an anecdote please from so so we had this we have this big project where we're listening to citizens in uh, uh, it's about um, green and blue space so parks in the sea so Plymouth's got the first national marine park and it's uh, I, I'm told it's the greenest city in the UK it's got more kind of green space um, uh, and we were doing some work in the big the big park in the middle of Plymouth and we noticed myself and a colleague from public health noticed a group of carers with their disabled relatives in the park and um, we said to the park manager, have you seen those? And he, I mean, he's a great guy. And he said, yeah, yeah, they're here a lot, most days. And, and we said, well, do you know why? And he was, no, I'm not, I'm not sure. So, so we went and spoke to them. And, and what they told us is um, if, you, if you have a disabled relative or a hyperactive child, uh, you probably need a toilet with a hoist. Now in Plymouth, there are only two public toilets with hoists. One is in the park in a place called the Life Centre, which is a super duper uh, kind of recreation centre, pool and you know sports thing. And the other is in the middle of town, and 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 the middle of town is a really hostile place if you've got someone that stands out in a crowd. And this is why they go to to the park. Um, but they also go to the park um, because. Uh, if your child is hyperactive and they're running around in a park, nobody nobody cares. It's a normal behaviour in a park. It's a weird thing in a city centre, but it's but it's but it's normal in a park. So we had this conversation with them, and as a kind of side side issue to that, so um, the other group that are in parks every day are dog walkers, and there's this really cohesive group of dog walkers who who, who are connected to the children's uh, uh, 
the people with disabilities. So, so, so they see each other every day and the kids pet the animals and they have this kind of relationship. But the, the, the previous narrative around dog walkers in parks is negative because it's about dogness. Although that's, that's another story we were able to kind of disprove. Um, so, so we had this conversation with them and uh, when we went back and to discuss it uh, amongst ourselves, and somebody, I can't remember who said, oh, this is a peer support group. This, this group of disabled carriers is a peer support group. Maybe we need a peer support worker. But actually what we were able to, through, through the conversations we'd gathered to understand is they're not a peer support group. They're, they're a friendship group <laughs> and they don't need a peer support worker. They, they maybe need a roof where they like to stand so they don't get wet. It rains a lot in Plymouth. Um, so that's kind of illustrative of this idea that that even unconsciously, even people are kind of in my little group of people that were doing this, your unconscious bias is that the, every problem must need a service. Yeah. And 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 they of course they don't. And the corollary of that is that assumes uh, something which is not asset based about the, the potential service recipient that you or we must do something to enable that person uh, to do something else, rather than start from the point of view is, hey, there's this friendship group. They have a really great um, relationship. They're, they're all kind of really supportive and, uh, and they're fine, thank you very much. Um, so the, this kind of idea that, that we must always try and solve things for people, do things to people is, is really strong and, and often unconscious and, and unthought about. And, and I think I think others, I'm, I'm sure, I think we've had a conversation about this in the past. So, so, so lots of services, um, they, they cease to be thoughtful. So I, I'm not saying nobody thinks uh, in services, of course they, they think about their work. But they don't think about the kind of water that they're swimming in, uh, the paradigm of, of their service. Um, and it comes back to this idea of purpose. Often, often um, you know, a service perhaps when it started, and, and, and often services started decades ago, um, maybe they were really kind of focused on their purpose. But through, through chains of governance and through the way we've commissioned and through kind of cultural uh, growth or accretion, they've moved away from, from that. And often what we do with the appreciative inquiry and, and introducing them to other parts of the system and, and all that kind of work we do to build empathy and trust, um, they realize they've, they've stopped being thoughtful. And if you want to stop um, these handoffs that, that our most, um, uh, what, what some people call our most expensive, uh, clients or others might call our most challenged or most challenging uh, clients if, if you want to stop handing them off so they're constantly bouncing around between services and using unplanned care or dying early or, or getting sick when they needn't have done you have to you have to make thresholds fuzzy and permeable so they work for people and if you're going to do that you have to you have to empower the public facing worker to exercise discretion um, and and you can't just suddenly point at someone who's worked in a particular way for a decade and say, overnight, you've got to work in a different way. You have to have a program to, to reveal things, uh, to support them, to follow that up with little bits of theory if that's necessary, um, to create uh, an environment within the service where they're not an outlier, where you're building a new culture together, which is much more about uh, focus on purpose and focus on learning through listening to the people you serve and, and often actually workforce development. So if you think about the Alliance and we use the meme definition, uh, the four things, uh, addiction, offending, homelessness and mental health. The person in front of you has all four of those things all of the time. And we were in this ridiculous position where they might have four different workers, all of whom are fighting each other not to do something. So when you stop drinking, I'll deal with your schizophrenia. When you stop, you know, when you when you sort out your depression, we'll we'll deal with your alcohol, that kind of thing. Um, and the example I give of, of this, um, which not, thankfully no longer happens, is for years and years and years, 
the direct access hostel used to say to me, 80 or 90% of our clients have uh, an addiction problem. We must have an addiction nurse in the hostel. Well, if 80% of your people have a thing, it's your thing. There's something fundamentally wrong with the way you're conceptualizing your thing. If you're ignoring this, what is the most significant issue for your, for your group? Um, uh, and that also leads to uh, certain key skills. So we did lots of work analyzing why people get handed off. Um, risk is a big issue. Uh, lack of appreciation of that risk is uh, risk can be mitigated. It's dynamic. Um, it's modifiable. Um, so what you find is in this complex needs system, uh, I, uh, I can't think of a better term on the hoof, um, is uh, you'll have part of the mental health team will all be trained in, in, in risk, appreciating risk, uh, modifying risk, supporting risk, risk sharing. Nobody else in the system has those skills. Or it, another really kind of simple example is, uh, these are all supposed to be places of change or places where people can get uh, small steps on uh, useful skills that will, will help them change. Everybody in addiction services is trained in motivational interviewing, stages of change model, that kind of thing. Nobody else. So, so this combination of highly siloed, highly thresholded work within services and the lack of useful skills being shared broadly across systems all serve to, to deny the most needy people the things they, they most need most of the time. So quite a lot of our work is about skill sharing and uh, workforce development and supports and, uh, uh, and, but also involving people in experimentation. So a key thing in the Alliance is everybody is free to experiment regardless of where you are in hierarchy because good ideas are not an artifact of hierarchy. Anyone can have a good idea. Um, so we, we encourage part of making the system thoughtful is, is supporting individual workers when they have been thoughtful to try out the things they've thought about. So if two people in our system have um, a good idea, they are free to, uh, to get together and, and try that. They don't have to do a business case. So the kind of thing, and it's interesting to me that Mark uh, Smith in Gateshead has the same criteria. In fact, maybe I stole it from him, I can't remember. Um, that this is the thing is, uh, Corruption and theft is a great thing amongst practitioners of this. We all kind of borrow uh, and lend uh, uh, stuff. Is, is it legal and is it safe? And if the answer to both those questions is yes, then they're allowed to try stuff. The only caveat is they have to gather any learning. Most of that learning they would gather through appreciative inquiry. So it's this kind of virtuous <laughs> circle rather than a vicious cycle. Um, does that answer the question? I, I yeah, feel, yeah, no, that's brilliant. Uh, I, I was thinking throughout that, I think, you really brought to life why this is radical and yet it's still very grounded what you're describing but I was thinking maybe if I was you know a senior manager in a public service I might be on one hand quite inspired by what I've just heard and the other hand terrified thinking how on earth do you scale that um, but from what I understand of your work actually you have achieved a pretty significant level of scale on a number of fronts could, could you just talk about what does that look like? Uh... Yeah, so we encourage, as it goes back to this idea of uh, encouraging everybody in a system to participate in the initial learning. Um, so if, 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 if we were asked to do some work in the system and the chief execs said, we want you to do this with our staff, we would say, well, we're not doing it. You, you have to do it too. Uh, and, and so you're trying to create a, a sense of shared endeavor Mm -hmm. um, and a collegiate approach where, where you're, you're constantly building trust and empathy uh, amongst the group. So what, if you think about the nature of competitive tendering, um, it drives out ideas of cooperation. Why would you share if you're going to have to compete in a, in a few years' time? Um, so, so we try to create a shared a sense of shared endeavor, a sense of community, a sense of collegiacy, and, and we include everybody in that. 
and everybody gets gets it really i mean I, I, we, we you meet very few resistors uh, and they're often people that haven't participated they're kind of outside mm. um so it it kind of happens organically uh, really um I, I couldn't claim that it's well i couldn't put my finger on exactly why you know that, that i did this and then that happened that's the nature of what we're doing in systems but um uh, people kind of do it willingly, <laughs> willingly because they see the sense of it. Uh, this is the, that this thing about guided discovery. Everybody can see the sense of it. It's not a, you know, I don't have a, I'm not a magic person. There's, uh, you know, and if I show people the things that move to me, it tends to move them too. And, and they want to do good in the world. So that's why they do this job for these kinds of jobs. You know, they were not, none of us doing it for the money. And, um, yeah, they, they 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 just tend to it, they take a, it takes on a life of its own, if you like, and um, so I'm not kind of curating it. I mean, certainly in the early stages I am, but but fairly quickly it becomes their thing, which is brilliant. That's you know that's what you want. I don't want it to be my my thing. It has to be their thing, or it's not, or it's not going to work. So so quite often it's me helping them get to a place where it becomes their thing. And then um, doing kind of what would you call it a bit of maintenance and gardening as they as as they take their thing on. I love that answer. I love that, and uh, it feels um, well. It's attractive to me because it feels like something you couldn't possibly put into a Gantt chart. <laughs> oh God, no, no. I, I mean, I haven't done a Gantt chart for ooh, decade. I mean, there are other people that do game charts, but I don't know about you, Andy, but the, uh, the more I do this, the more the current world uh, the, just doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> These, you can, I mean, yeah, this idea that if we get ever more technical and we're ever more precise in our Gantt chart or our, you know, whatever it might be, uh, it's just ludicrous when you can when you confront the system with the lived experience of everyone in the system. So that's the other thing is we do a preaching inquiry with all the staff and, and all the managers and all the commissioners, and it doesn't work for anybody. It, nobody says thank God for targets, thank God for performance management. I love I love competition. No, nobody says that, um, and. And quite often, just the listening reveals to people, "Geez, we got this badly wrong. You know, we've, we 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 need to, we, we're actively so so." And the other thing, the interesting thing for me is because because I'm also part of the trauma group. I don't lead that. Someone, uh, 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 two two other two or three other brilliant people lead that in Plymouth. It's a big thing in Plymouth, the trauma informed network. And uh, we've recently had a, uh, a session around how services service current service delivery actively traumatizes. People, so so that's another really useful link for me. So if I can't go in on on my side, the complex system side, I can go in on the trauma side. And and when you speak to people, I mean the work um, my colleague Jenna Scott did with um, children that are morbidly obese was was really impactful for uh, for everybody. The lived experience of those ten, uh, of those ten families. Um, so much so that there are only two of the 10 stories that we could ever share in our, in our training because the, the other eight are just horrendously uh, traumatic to listen to. And it's this repeated denial of service, this repeated withdrawal of service, the, the, the repetition of punishing interventions uh, experienced by the person that's punishing. They're often not intended to be punishing. And, and just the, the lack of understanding of, of professional staff, of, of the lives of people that, that are living hand to mouth, uh, you know, buy a slow cooker. Well, I mean, how are they gonna buy a slow cooker? They can't, you know, <laughs> they can barely feed themselves. <laughs> I mean, I think what's remarkable in a sense is, um, 
you've said a couple of times and I agree with you you know that people in the system are not bad people wanting bad things or any of that and yet if I hear you right and this would echo my experience the the extent to which the current system is actually perpetuating harm rather than adding value at scale is quite shocking when you stare it in the face so I'm curious um to what extent do you think uh, people outside those you've worked with really believe that that is the case? Because I, I wonder sometimes if that's a barrier, you know, do, we, do people, um, are, are we blind to the scale of harm and the fact that it's being caused by the system? Mm, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's an unusually definite answer from me. Uh, uh, yeah, yes, uh, and I think it's. The, so we've you know, we've we cases of this this uh, this 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 week. So there's a, there's a chap. Uh, I won't go into detail, but uh, goes into hospital, uh, discharges himself just wearing his hospital pajamas. He's picked up hypothermic, taken back to the hospital warmed up and discharged in its pajamas and and because the, the the hospital's overwhelmed with covid it's no you know i completely understand uh, the impetus to to do it um but i imagine they just discharge this person and they forget about them and they move on to the next person so, so part of the process of this new public management is the is the relentless conveyor belt of uh, assessment, uh, then you know, denial of service assessment. You know, maybe you get a service, um, and then it, and when, when you get a service, it tends to be packaged. It tends to be, it's not really bespoke. Uh, uh, a lot of the, I mean, a lot of services claim they're doing bespoke things, but the, the, they're really not in the fundamental, in the fundamentals of doing. The, the, the other interesting thing for me is so, so we have this thing called the Creative Solutions Forum, which has been an amazingly successful um, system uh, kind of test bed. So, so we set it up um, to uh, to really model an integrated bespoke way of working, where so the most in, the cases that are most intractable and expensive in the city might be referred there. It's multi-agency, multi-hierarchical commissioners managers practitioners um, and they're all accessing data in real time uh, and the only re rule really is you can't come and hand off someone it's about how you build something bespoke uh, for somebody who's um, really kind of suffering immensely and and that's been really successful in, in the last five years it's been running so successful we've not actually been able to quantify lots of the benefits because as you know yourself if you do something one part of the system it has all these benefits you couldn't uh, have imagined in other parts of the system so you know reduction in blue lights is almost impossible to to measure but what's happened recently is um for some agencies this has now become another tick box <laughs> um and uh you know if you want to evict someone, you've got to send their case there first, uh, and then you can evict them. Rather than you know, so, there's there's so it, as you're moving forward, kind of behind you, there the uh, there's this regression to the mean, kind of chasing you like a uh, like a wave. So you have to turn around and go back and re remind people and uh, and and do something else because. And it's about expediency, I think, and 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 efficiency for service rather than for, for people. So it's often a result of a service feeling pressure on itself and in itself, um, and then they'll 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 try and relieve that pressure. But the people that pay the price for that relief of pressure are the people they should be serving. Yeah, and I think what it's quite a hard thing to grab hold of and, and keep hold of I think what you're saying but it feels to me like this is the absolute center of what's important in this work is that it's sort of not programmatic it's not a kind of calcify the best practice that comes out of it, it, it you know it's results through relationships almost it's just um, and and therefore not necessarily something that could be 
bought or commissioned or whatever in traditional terms at least does that sound right to you yeah um sometimes people say would you uh, we'd like you to come and help us do this and i say well i can come and help you but i don't know that it will end up in that I, I don't know where it will end up i think it will end up in a better place than you are it'll end up in a place where what you're doing is based on what you've learned but it might, but it won't necessarily be what you imagine it will be now. I, I, you know, I've done loads of this work in loads of systems, and I'm constantly, well, I'm not surprised anymore, but I'm, I'm constantly amazed at the where you get effect, at what you know, what happens as a con. It's, in, it's completely unpredictable, and you end up, you know, I, you think you're doing a thing for for a particular thing, and it, and something else entirely happens mainly those things are good sometimes they're not but 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 they are mainly good and even the things that turn out not to be good that's often the next place you need to go because you know you've pushed the bubble in the wallpaper and it's popped up somewhere else and you need to go and uh, uh, do that um but yeah so i absolutely agree it's not so so people say what can we lift and shift from you and i would say you can't lift and shift anything from us um, because your system is different to our system, but you can adopt the same values and principles and apply them in your setting, and you will come up with something unique and bespoke for your place and your people. Um, now, for for the last 25 years, as you know, with lift and shift and scale and all that has been a, a big thing. So it's often um, hard to land that with a particular kind of public service manager, but... Um, that's that's the reality of it i can't predict at the beginning where where we'll end up i don't know it, it's about how you build a willingness to take a leap of faith with people yeah absolutely so i guess listening to that gary there's um there's obvious like emotional reward in doing the kind of work that you're doing um i imagine at least um and lots to be excited about but there must be uh, or let's ask it as a question, is, is there frustration in doing it as well? Because it, it feels like there's a, a big old machine that's, you know, been turning that conveyor belt you mentioned for years. And um, so does that get frustrating? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, frustrating, but also energizing. <laughs> so, so uh, I'm a quite a relentless person. If I, if I think it, if I think something's wrong, I don't. I won't let it go. Um, I can't. There's some. I I just can't acquiesce. I refuse to be complicit. So I just keep going. I just try to find a different way to try and push push back against that. But it, uh, so for a number of years, I'd have said. So we were doing all this stuff in Plymouth, and Plymouth is an integrated city and all budget support and all that. Um, but I didn't have the same traction inside the council as I did outside the council and in the VCSE and commission services. Um, and that's all changed in the last couple of years. So, you know, right now, I mean, just this summer, I think I trained about 100 council staff how to do appreciative inquiry. It's becoming a core method for a lot of council businesses to start with open listening. Um, there are some really in, interesting discussions going on within the council about how we organise, uh, uh, which uh, I can't say too much about at this stage. But but essentially, the council I really have really I guess have seen the result of a lot of the work that myself and others are doing. So it's not just me doing this; but there are other people in the council that do this work. Um, and are recognizing it saves money it's better you know it's a better way of doing things it's a kind of nicer uh way too um and it's really taken off in the council so whereas previously we might have uh, had an internal battle with i don't know procurement or legal or something. we don't anymore it's uh it's um that does seem to we seem to be in the middle of a really significant shift um right across the the, the council um towards a more human learning systems approach there's a, there's increased recognition about the damaging effect of quantitative proxy targets um yeah that's so amazing to hear. um uh, yeah absolutely 
stunning and i guess nothing sells success like success but but back to earlier bits of the conversation you you maybe can't predict where the success will emerge just have a degree of confidence that it will if you keep going yeah yeah so one of the interesting things to me which is uh, which has helped us is um so firstly to acknowledge that um the genesis of me getting traction for this in the early in in, 2014 was the fact that the CCG and the council pulled their budgets and the public health budget uh, and integrated the commissioning team because they it, uh, they wanted to play space, one system, one budget, four strategies. Um, and all of the senior leadership did uh, systems leadership course. So they they were open to, to allowing us to try stuff. Um, but that just really seems to have kind of become embedded. So. So for me, so quite a lot of the stuff that we've done in the Alliance, for example, has saved money in other parts of the city. So in the hepatology ward by reducing frequent admissions or by reducing bed and breakfast spend. Um, uh, And because we're a single integrated city, that makes sense to us. I can see that in another city, I've got a friend, we've got a friend who's in another city in Devon, and I won't name him, um, who really struggles to get that traction because um, they're not integrated. And people do say, well, why would I save money for the emergency department? I work for the council or, or vice versa. Hopefully that will change with um, integrated care systems. Yeah. Uh, I'm a bit skeptical. But I think that's a really interesting insight as well, because you know we've talked a lot about the human side, the, the kind of emergent results through relationships type stuff. But but I, I think what you're pointing to there is that there maybe are things at a policy level or a, a structure level that can be shifted that create a more receptive environment for this. Is, is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very much so. Um, uh, so, so uh, I mean, I completely understand why, why organizations with a bigger footprint than just Plymouth, Plymouth is quite a small city, um, about 280,000 people, um, why they would want uh, a pan-Devon or a pan-Devon and Cornwall uh, approach, but that doesn't make sense for for us locally. It's much more about creating a sense of place. And and the way I would describe the the attitude of of our council is, I think it recognizes all of the risk is in the past. So, they they cannot behave like the authority in a place because they don't have the money they don't have the staff anymore so so they they we seem to have taken on a more curatorial role we're a curator of our place um and if you're going to do that you need to be really generous with other partners and invite other partners to get in early and and do the vision thing uh and share that out and then they'll spend their money uh, in support of our common aims. So it's another way of getting investment uh, in the city. Um, and, and really that, that's how we originally solved the alliance was, you know, we, you, we, we do not have the money to do what we did before. We, we have to do something different. It's much less risky to do that than to try to, you know, to keep salami slice, slicing these services as, we, as austerity bite. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, yeah. I th- I think it is much as a city we are we are all committed to to improving the lot of our place yeah yeah what what i'm really i mean i always enjoy our conversations but what i'm really enjoying about this is that i think the way you're explaining these things makes quite clear what some of the radical shifts would be you know around how we work with partners how we commission how we lead uh, where our focus is etc um and even though they feel so radical, uh, what I'm picking up from what you're describing is in many ways, it's just about putting one foot in front of the other. And um, I love that, I love that. So maybe talk to me about that for a minute then in terms of putting one foot in front of the other, what, what does the next six months, year, whatever look like for, for you in this work? Oh, well, at the moment we're still uh, in the midst of the pandemic. <laughs> And obviously, as a public health person, in the last uh, 18 months, I've been spending quite a lot of my time, as have all my colleagues, managing 
outbreaks. I've tended to do uh, outbreaks in care homes. Um, but um, so there will still be a lot of that, I think. But as part of that, myself and Dan and some other colleagues uh, have been gathering people's COVID stories. So we originally thought we'd create a kind of Journal of the Plague Year um, as a kind of record, uh, historical record. Um, and I think that's happening too. But um, so we've been, been interviewing uh, infection control people and public health people and care managers and staff at the hospital and uh, our care home support teams about their experience of COVID. And uh, that has been amazing. And uh, the real kind of bit of learning for me is, uh, so prior to COVID, I mean, Plymouth is really fertile ground for HLS, but it was still seen as a slightly spoony thing. Um, and then in COVID, uh, through these stories we've gathered, and we, we asked people what's been good about COVID, and they all talk about working in a human learning system. <laughs> they don't use that language, but they say, oh, you know, all the, 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 the mutual support, the, the laser focus on purpose, the, the collegiacy, the, the sweeping away all the governance and just really focusing on doing the right thing at the right time. And, and we really, really love that. And, um, uh, and we want, you know, and the corollary of that is um, um, what do you want to keep and what you're worried about when, when it's over and, and what they're worried about is going back to the way it was before hierarchical target-based competition that, that 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 kind of thing so it's almost normalized it, it's made new public management seem weird mm. rather than the human learning system seem weird um, and we one of the things we did we, we spoke to somebody i won't identify that person who's been brilliant through, through COVID and there's a really kind of important uh, role with care homes. And um, when we were talking to him about the first part of that question, what's been good, all his language was really person-centered and um, kind of collegiate and uh, all that kind of stuff. And then when we started talking about, so he was talking about the amazing job care home managers have done and just how great it had been to connect with them emotionally and. And then we said, well, what are you worried about when, it, when, it, when it's over? And he, start, he, he literally in one sentence moved from talking about colleagues to talking about the market and uh, began using the language of markets and tendering competitions. And, and we kind of asked him about that. And he was like, yeah, I, yeah, I did. I, I kind of hadn't realized I'd done that. It's, so it's a really powerful thing, I think. Um, uh, this... Yeah, so, so one of the things we really, really, really obsessively focus on is, is language. So, you know, in the Alliance, we don't use any of the language. We use the language of our thing, and our thing is service, duty, care, that kind of stuff. Uh, not the language of markets, not the language of conflict. We don't talk about frontline staff. This is not a war. Uh, these are people trying to access services to which they're entitled. Um, so we we talk about what we do in the words that are appropriate to that. We don't use those other words because just in that one sentence, he went from being in a, a really connected, uh, empathetic person. That he, that's this idea that he's creating, that he's telling you the story of his relationship with care, care managers. And then in the same sense, suddenly they're dehumanized. Yeah. They're a market. They're a, they're a product. Everything's commodified. Just in that one sentence, it was like a light bulb. I mean, I can totally see it. You're reminding me of a, a blog I wrote with my business partner, actually, um, around COVID. I think it was called Stop Capturing Crisis Lessons Learned. But the, the idea behind it was, I think, what you're articulating was almost, you know, the, the world has required us to be led by reality for a period of time. And yeah. the danger is that we now freeze frame and calcify that reality and stop being led by the reality. Yeah. Um I think the point about language is really interesting there too, though, that that's maybe one way to immunize yourself against that. You know, let's hold on to the human language. Um, mm. Yeah, and it's kind of feeds into all these ideas of professional distance, uh, which is othering you know, by another name. Uh, and the more distance you create, the more likely you are to unknowingly or knowingly do harm to a person. Yeah. Um, yeah, makes it easy to, to do that.
Yeah. Um, so we, 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 we try not to do it because for, for the obvious reason that it becomes harder. If, you, if you've got a kind of really empathetic relationship with the person, it becomes harder to do bad things to them. Yeah. Um, bad thing, and uh, I, don't, I don't mean, you know, by a bad thing, I mean denial of service or a, an overly narrow service or a, or a you know, silly, uh, kind of setting people up to fail, that, that, that kind of thing. It becomes much harder to do that. So I'm going to start to pull this to a close in a minute, but I, I guess one of the things I'm aware of that maybe we've not touched on fully, but your point about what COVID has brought about, I think leads into this, which is, you know, for you in Plymouth, what I heard was COVID shifted the context, um, created more traction for this way of working, et cetera. And I think, I think we've seen that. Uh, far beyond Plymouth as well and I know that things like you know the HLS human learning systems approach is a way of trying to kind of capture the spirit of this work and it's been getting traction so can you just give us a, a flavor of your insights on how this this sort of way of working is spreading and growing and um, finding its way in the world? Uh, yeah so obviously so this <laughs> So I'm a public health person, so I think of it as a, an infection. Uh, 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 yeah, so I'm a vector of infection and I want to create more vectors of infection. Um, um, so we, we kind of spread like a foot fungus. <laughs> so the so thing about a foot fungus is you often don't, don't know you've got it until the itch starts and then you can't get rid of the bloody thing. <laughs> Um, so, so that's what we're kind of aiming to be, is, is, a, is that kind of thing. So um, um, it, it kind of spreads on its own. Everybody says this is, they all say it's a harder way to work because you are invested and you, you are suddenly aware of the limitations of what's on offer for people. Uh, but they all say it's a better way to work they and and we've we we have evidence of this so so when we've applied this to staff groups long-term sickness drops off a cliff once you move from the old style to to hls it drops off a cliff so in one area i think we had over 20 people on long-term sick and by the time we'd finished the work there were four and they they had a terrible staff survey and then suddenly they had the best staff staff survey so just a bit about method so when we do the way we kind of organize this ourselves because sometimes people want to report you to write a report about stuff is um we and i developed this with a colleague called claire turbot in some working for public health england or whatever that is now um is we map the things we encounter at a system level against this is business as usual you should have done something about this you didn't need us to come and tell you that this person doesn't have the equipment to do their job you should have just bought it for them uh, and then the next level is this is entirely within our system's uh capability to solve we don't need to go anywhere else we as a system can solve this and then the third level is this is an artifact of a boundary between our system and another system so we need to engage that other system and collectively solve it um and then for individual staff we're always mapping what they tell us against mastery autonomy and purpose so mastery is the ability to be good at a thing autonomy is to have some control over how you work and purpose is a sense of making a difference and and often you find um staff don't have a lot of mastery autonomy and purpose in highly algorithmic services highly routinized practice um, and that means they're not happy so what we would then do is kind of put that in a report and say this is where people are lacking mastery and uh, and these are ways you can give mastery autonomy and purpose to people um yeah so i've kind of forgotten this question but <laughs> that's that's just one of the things we do is uh it's one of the small bits of kind of structure that that, that we that we regularly come back to those kind of two two groups of three of, of three things yeah. To, to help people make it um, manageable and, del and deliverable. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you just twigged a few experiences from my past there um, when you were talking about it's a harder way to work, but 
but ultimately more rewarding. I mean, I uh, probably shouldn't say this in a podcast. This is commercial suicide for me, but I, uh, I kind of always know that I'm making progress with a client when they cry. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Um, that that's happened quite a few times, perhaps a surprising number of times, but I think it's because um, when this is sort of really in someone, um, you know, they recognize how difficult it is, but they also recognize how compelling it is to do something about it. Um, which uh, we, yeah, I, I find some... it fascinating, you know, it, it, there's something really deep and human about this way of working. Yeah, yeah, and people, it's often a, a huge relief to people to, um, yeah, to, to, to be validated by, by uh, by that, I think. So it's one of the things that's quite interesting is we did this. Uh, I was trying to understand why, the, in a particular system, and this was between staff and, and, and managers, that there was a fairly difficult relationship. And I was trying to understand why the appreciative inquiry made such an, such an impact. And I think what happens is, uh, in some services, your manager sees you maybe quarterly and the basis of that discussion is often target-based. Have you achieved your targets or your PDP or whatever it is you, you do in that organization? So it becomes a transaction, it's a transactional conversation. And often the worker, because of austerity, they, they may not have the appropriate kit or support or whatever it might be to do the job. And they've raised that repeatedly, but there's no money. So the managers repeatedly ignore that. And, and and so the member of staff hates this meeting because they're just going to get beaten up about their targets. And the manager hates the meeting because this person is going to be difficult, uh, you know, this member of staff. So, so you have this quarterly meeting where both people dread it. I hate it. And um, uh, and then you and then they start to invent stories about the other person that they're a bad person, they're just a difficult person. They're a, he's a crap manager. He, you know, we need to. Yeah, if only we had a decent manager, kind of thing. But actually, they're both trapped by the by by the system. And I think what uh, appreciative inquiry does is it enables the staff member and the manager to reveal who they actually are, and what they find is they have enormous things in common. And, and they reveal themselves to each other as fully human. And it then becomes impossible not to buy that person the bit of kit they, they need to do their job. And, and very often the manager's like, yeah, God, why, why, why did I not see that? Well, it's because they were trapped by the system as much as the, as much as the worker was. So yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Some of these things are just kind of- 100%, I love that. And, and you may have just answered what was going to be my next question, but let's ask it anyway. So, um, so stepping back from all the kind of complexity and detail that we've explored there, if, if you had to distill this to sort of a key piece of advice to people, um, what would you point them at? What, what would you say to them? I would say, keep going. Um, uh, I spent years uh, being ignored and trying stuff and not it not getting traction even though it worked and uh but and then suddenly it was an idea whose time has come so so i think there's something about persistence um which is really important there is something about uh sticking to your values and principles and not compromising on those um and then the the most important thing uh is which reflects the question i'm asked most often by by other areas uh, it's a bit like that scene in Life of Brian, where shall we start? Um, it doesn't matter. Just start. Do something. Don't, you know, can be tiny, it can be big, doesn't matter. Just chuck a stone in the, in the pond, create some ripples and, and keep going. Do that iteratively because that's how you learn all the connections in the system, how the system connects to other systems, what's wrong with the system, what might be right with the system, is by constant, a combination of experimentation and listening. Um, that's all you have. You don't have anything else in the complex system. You're not controlling it. Everything else is non-linear, unsummable. Um, 
all you have is this try stuff learn from that try some more love it gary thank you so much um I'm going to I'm going to pull this to a close now, but I've got a huge man and I think I'm sure listeners will have picked up. But um, I guess what comes through so strongly to me is that mixture of sort of relentlessness and clarity around, you know, principles and purpose and so on. But also, I think the humility and generosity that, you know, you're not doing that in a way that is judging mm -hmm. others um, or putting them in boxes. And, and it feels to me like that's the secret sauce in what you're doing. So, um, uh, you know, it's just a real pleasure to hear you talk about it and to um, have an opportunity to invite you to share that with others. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Um, so one last question and we'll wrap. Um, for folk that have been listening that would like to find out more, um, where could they go? So they could go to the excellent Next Stage Radicals Thinking Loud uh, site, or they could go to the excellent Human Learning Systems uh, site. I think Lang Kelly Chase had some interesting things on their website. Um, but specifically, if you go via the HLS site, you can get in touch with lots of people that are doing this. I'm not, there are loads of us doing this. Um, here and in other places and I think we're all pretty generous we're all very happy to share not least because the more people that do it the safer we are and um, you know so if you, you kind of create a new a new norm so yeah check check out those sites there's some really good resources up there on them. brilliant thank you I'll put links to those in the text below the podcast um, top ahead for those that want it uh nextageradicals.net humanlearning.systems i think is um the address is lan kelly i'll need to look up for you um but that that's super helpful and maybe just to throw in the mix i know that you're going to do a little exploring loud workshop with us on 10th of december 12 30 to 1 30 so yeah. for listeners keen to um talk to you direct that's an opportunity and again yeah. thanks gary for being prepared to do that Lovely. I'm looking forward to it. Salute. I think just a big, huge thank you. And um, I keep doing the great work you're doing. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear your thoughts and reflections. So please tweet me at Next Radicals or get in touch at nextstageradicals.net. There you'll also find hundreds of posts and podcasts, sketch notes and stories, reports and resources, which Next Stage Radicals like you have shared as they explore what it takes to make work, work better.